when you ask a baby boomer what they care about when making a purchasing decision, they'll say value. So looking for high quality products at a cheap price, that's number one. When you ask somebody who's a millennial or Gen Z what they care about most when they make a purchasing decision, they'll say brand values. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined with Taylor Green, a long-term friend who I've known since his days at Lear Hippo in the venture world, and he recently moved over as a partner at Collaborative Fund. So Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with the background that I just hinted at. You know, we met when you were investing at Lear Hippo, doing a lot in the consumer brand space with great companies like Allbirds and Caspers and all kinds of things like that. You've now moved over to Collaborative Fund, which has had a pretty good month with two IPOs here in recent weeks. What's been the path that brought you to where you are today? Yeah, so I actually, I started my career on the operating side. So started at a, a startup back in 2002, and really caught the bug for technology and startups. It really fit my personality. Started my career at a company called Synapse, which eventually sold to Time Warner back in 2005. And then I got a little bit of a taste for what the corporate world is like moving over to, to Time Warner. But I always was thinking about software in the back of my head. So I started making some angel investments. Went to business school, continued angel investing, started working at a fund way back uh, back then. It was one of the DFJ affiliates. I just got hooked on the venture world and always felt like it would be great if I could end up back in that world someday. But in the meantime, joined the founding team of a, of a startup in the search engine optimization space. I had learned a lot about that in my days at Time Warner and felt like I could build some software that helped large e-commerce companies get their products ranked better on on Google. So spent some time doing that as a four-year run. I saw the uh, ups and downs, ultimately sold that company in 2013, and then kind of by accident fell into the, to the venture world. I had made a couple of angel investments alongside the Lira Hippo team, got to know them a little bit, and joined up there when they had about, I don't know, about 50 million in, in AUM. And as you mentioned, started investing on the consumer side. I spent about four years there, four and a half years. And it was about six years ago, I met my current partner, Craig Shapiro, who was kind of doing something similar in New York, investing in consumer-facing startups, but had this idea that the future or the, the next set of generational defining companies sat at the center of for-profit and for-good. So I think before collaborative you kind of view the venture ecosystem in two ways. There were the traditional venture firms that were measured solely on financial returns. And then on the other side, you had impact funds that were measured more for kind of their social impact. Craig had this idea that the two aren't mutually exclusive. You can invest in companies that are better for you, better for the world, but also provide a superior financial return. So that was something that always resonated with me I'd invested in a few of those companies uh, or companies that fit that thesis at Lear. And then about 18 months ago, moved over to focus mostly on consumer at Collaborative, uh, investing along the lines of you know, digital health, but also uh, spent a lot of time in, in fintech. 
but have on the direct consumer side have shifted away from traditional apparel and traditional direct consumer businesses to focus more on direct consumer businesses in the food category. So speaking on that, one of your investment themes that you talked about with the the new fund that came out last year is that you're looking at value aligned brands that can define a generation. So there's a lot to unpack there. So what's each of those words is probably pretty choiceful. So what are you looking for when you say that value aligned and defining a generation? Well, I think any venture capitalist wants to be lucky enough to invest in a company that defines a generation. So a Google, an Amazon, you know, something like that. But we believe when you look forward 20 years, those generational defining businesses look very different. And one of the things we stumbled onto was when you look at data around purchasing behavior, specifically for millennials and Gen Z, it's very different than the purchasing behavior of baby boomers, for example. So when you ask a baby boomer what they care about when making a purchasing decision, they'll say value. So looking for high quality products at a cheap price, that's number one. When you ask somebody who's a millennial or Gen Z what they care about most when they make a purchasing decision, they'll say brand values. And that was pretty illuminating to us because it represented a huge shift in purchasing behavior And we thought it was a a category worth leaning into. And it was also something that we very much believed ourselves as we looked at our own purchasing behavior. So it effectively means that there's something else to the brand than just a high quality product. It has to be a high quality product, but it also needs to stand for something else. So that could be sustainability, could be, you know, better for the environment. It could have to do with, you know, health and well-being. So we're seeing a lot of that in the in the plant-based food movement where it may taste different than than you know be something like beyond meat might taste different than traditional you know beef but it certainly tastes better than in our in our minds than the traditional veggie burger which was previously the only alternative and so that's a perfect example of something that's value aligned it's better for the world it's better for the environment it's better for you healthier and it tastes a lot better than the other you know, alternatives. So we look for those types of opportunities that are at the center of that virtual Venn diagram. So you mentioned that you've done a lot of work looking in food and beverage, and you just talked about Beyond Meat as a, as a great example. And in particular, though, you're talking about lab-grown food and beverage, which is a pretty unique space. And you've taken that as far as Glimp Whiskey, the synthetic whiskey that's uh, coming to market. So why is this space so interesting to you? Is it just the values or do you think it's something broader than that that's changing? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's there's a lot really interesting to us there. One is the brand values. So when you look at what contributes to climate change, there's a lot of research out there that raising animals for meat consumption is a major contributing factor to greenhouse gases. And so we see a lot of the world moving away from eating meat just for that particular reason. But another reason we love that category comes down to cost over the long term. So we believe over the long term, if done right, the lab-grown food products can be cheaper than what's out there on the market. And when you have something that's cheaper and then you can 
fold in healthier, like, uh, like I was just saying, and then combine that with a cost benefit. It's kind of that perfect you know, triumvirate of what we think is it could potentially be a generational defining business. So those types of businesses are at the center of, you know, for, for better for you, better for the better for the world. So we are leaning heavily into that category, investing in lab grown meat. We're, we're looking at, you know, genetically engineered plants. We're looking at pretty much anything that is modifying genes of things that we have been engaging with for, the, for our entire lives, but doing that in a way that benefits us in some way, whether that be health or cost or the environment. So on the opposite side of that coin, you know, you're looking at the brands, but you're also looking at the future of retail, how those brands might go to market and be sold and get into the hands of consumers. And you've done investments with cool companies like Foxtrot and Spice and Four Post kind of over the last 12 months. What do you think is going to change in retail? over the next, you know, call it five years? I mean, I think the biggest change in retail is that it's really tough to make the four wall unit economics work in traditional fashion. So I think it's important to take a couple different approaches. One approach that we really like is leveraging brick and mortar stores as distribution points for e-commerce. So we looked really heavily into that theme. It was a thesis that we had, ended up making an investment there in the convenience space, a company called Foxtrot. And then we also think that there's a lot that can be learned from the WeWork model. When you, when we look at a startup and we talking to the founders, we ask them, where's your office? Or it's something that often comes up and they, and they are often saying, we work at, we are at WeWork. And you know, there's no doubt that that company is on a tear. I mean, I think it's, it's somewhat controversial, but the company is doing incredibly well. And so we started looking into the, whether that model would work in the retail world as well, uh, especially for, you know, some of our own brands that aren't, you know, they don't have the balance sheet, especially the emerging ones, to take out a 10-year brick-and-mortar lease at the, you know, shopping center of any given city so it makes sense to kind of team up and, and apply the, the, the shared model, the WeWork model of retail. And so that's another thesis that we had. So we ended up making an investment there. So I think there's a lot that needs to change just because the current four wall economics aren't working, but you have to do it in a way that stays away from what Amazon is amazing at. So we're excited about investments. there, still looking very much at that category, but also are eager to see how, how it plays out a little bit more. So talk about those two investment themes as you invest in consumer brands, retail, and you know other spaces. How important do you think domain expertise is in building these businesses? Um, you know, I just listened to the founder of Allbirds talking, and while he'd never launched a secret company before, he was an athlete, and he'd experienced it. So he had a domain expertise in what made a great shoe in that. How do you think about that as you look at these innovators, disruptors, and everything else? Yeah, I mean, I think it all. At the end of the day, it all. It almost always comes down to the to the founders. You know, you have to bet on on people to be able to pivot the business. Whether it's uh, it's not always a hundred and eighty degree pivot, but oftentimes it's a twenty degree pivot, and that is up to the founder to really execute on. So, also we look for the ability for them to tell a story. And so, when I first met Tim from Allbirds, 
he was telling his own personal story about how he hated wearing socks with shoes and kind of sounds silly at first, but then you really, you know, once you've experienced that product, you realize it makes perfect sense. And he's, you know, uniquely positioned to create, you know, the best product in that category. And he's been, and he's thinking differently than any other founder that we'd ever met. So I think that domain expertise is helpful in some cases, but also sometimes it's helpful to have absolutely no expertise in a specific category if you're trying to reinvent it. At Predicting the Turn, we talk a lot about growth challenges facing business leaders today. And as we talk about growth, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Chinatown Bureau. Chinatown Bureau is a consumer experience firm solely focused on driving brand growth. They move brands beyond advertising towards a new brand growth playbook. They do this by building the strategies and technology tools that make each customer relationship as valuable as possible, streamlining operations and creating new revenue opportunities. Their clients are Fortune 500s and high growth startups alike, and their engagements range from strategy development through full implementation of a new consumer experience. If you're experiencing slow brand growth and looking for a better solution beyond just advertising, visit ChinatownBureau.com to schedule a call today. So you talked about the importance of the founders. And when you announced Fund4 last year, uh, you wrote this line that said, making a good investment is more than writing a check. It's backing a founder who sees the world through a similar lens as the investors, which helps both parties navigate the inevitable ups and downs hand in hand. You know, what's an example where that mindset played out to your benefit? And is there any time in your past that maybe you didn't look at that way and it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to? Yeah, I'd say you kind of you're looking for founders who want to solve a problem rather than start a company. And they tend to be the best founders because say what you will about the venture model. We need one company to go to a billion dollar outcome in order for us to provide the returns that we're looking to provide to our limited partners. And it's very tempting to sell a business along the way at 50, $100 million. And, and that's, first of all, that's really hard to do. And when that happens, we high five the founders, but we are looking for that profile of founder who wants to take it further. And oftentimes, it's those founders who are out to solve a big problem, not to start the company that decide to that they really want to change the world. And so it works to our benefit from a financial perspective to invest in those founders because they're willing to go the distance and build something great. But also they ha- those founders happen to be the ones who also want to change the world in a big way, which is very much aligned with our, our values. So there's a business reason for that, but there's also an authentic social reason for that, wanting to work with people who see the world the same way, because we feel like that also gives us an edge in you know finding those founders that want to work with us and the founders we want to work, work with. So it's, this is a journey. I'd say the best companies that I've been involved with, I end up becoming close friends with the founders, largely because we have this shared worldview. I'd say my, my partners are similar. We see the world in a, in a similar way, which I think is, can be really helpful. And then there are other times where it hasn't worked out so well when 
it turns out that the founder, you know, was starting the company just to kind of have a, a quick hit, which is, you know, again, don't, I don't fault them for that at all, but it's not necessarily what I'm looking for. I'm looking for companies that want to make a big impact. So you mentioned your partners and the fact you guys are very aligned in how you view the world. There's this debate around consensus investment making, and do you need all consensus in a partnership? And in particular, when you look at a corporation, traditionally it's, yeah, he with the biggest paycheck is the one that makes the decision. Consensus isn't as important. How do you guys think about that when you look at investments and debate of consensus versus non-consensus? Yeah, I mean, I think once all the work is done, there's typically one partner within the partnership who is the champion of the deal. And we have a long, robust discussion about the company. At the end of that discussion, there are either everyone is unanimous and it's all thumbs up, which ironically gives us a little bit of pause because sometimes those are the safest investments and the you know, you, you don't want to put the safe investments or you don't want the fund to be entirely made up of safe investments because history shows that those tend not to outperform. But we've structured the fund in a way where, you know, there's somebody can really pound the table for a deal and get it pushed through. But it's clear when others disagree, which is an important thing to take into consideration because history also shows that it, it's often the, the deals that have the... Uh, binary reactions within a partnership that end up doing really well. I mean, I, I didn't look at Airbnb, but I can only imagine that that deal looked very strange, especially at the seed stage. It's something that had never been done before. But if there was one partner who really wanted to do that deal and one partner who really didn't, it's up to that champion of the, of the deal to decide whether they're passionate enough about it to push it through, despite the fact that nobody else likes it. So we have the ability to do deals that are, you know, when it's not unanimous, but it's helpful to have other partners on the same page. So, you know, talking about history and looking back on things, how do you approach reviewing performance when something went right, like Beyond Meat and, you know, some of those investments, and maybe when something went wrong? Do you spend much time reviewing the tape, looking at your investment memo, figuring out your thought process and where maybe the thought process was right or wrong? Yes, I, I do it even before the company you know, goes under. I think I do it when a competitor raises a big round. We go back to the investment memo just to, to verify whether we still feel like this approach is the best one or if a competitor has a better approach, how can we shift the company to compete more effectively. I mean, I've all kind of been that way my whole life where I look back and, and you know, try to Im improve. I think the one thing that we all have in common within the partnership is we just all want to be great at this job. And I don't think you can be great at this job without looking back and trying to, trying to improve. But a lot of times you look back and there really wasn't anything you could have done. You know, the market just wasn't there or the founder turned out not to be the, 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 the right founder for that business or, you know, the you know, macro environment shifted and you know, there's a little bit of luck in, in all of this. And so there's sometimes there's not much you can do, but that doesn't stop us from trying to learn or trying to help the company along the way and give them the best chance for success. And do you formalize that in terms of how you collect the data and think and review it? Or is it that moment in time? We don't have a formal process. We're just constantly 
you know, sharing things that are happening in the, in the market. But when a company does dissolve, we do have a little conversation in our weekly meeting about, you know, kind of what's the lesson. So it's, it's not a formal process, but it is something that we do take seriously. And, and it does come up pretty often in the, in uh, partner meetings when it does happen. So you mentioned that you're constantly sharing with the, the team back and forth. You're, you're in an industry that's at the leading edge of change and you're, you're making a bet on something that's going to happen five years from now. How do you keep yourself sharp and keep ahead of where things are going and where you want to place your bets for the future? Yeah, I mean, I think, we're, so I would say that about half of our investments are kind of defined by, by, the, by our deal flow. So we're trying to read the tea leaves from the deal flow and we see three similar looking companies with a similar concept come in. We take notice because that might be a trend, but that the other half of our investments are more thesis driven, where we have an idea for where the build for where the world is going. And we are, you know, trying to figure out what's what's the company that's going where is the value going to accrue in the in the stack and how do we make an investment into that you know layer of the stack but i think we're really lucky in this job in that we spend most of our day meeting with founders and those founders are largely you know are usually a lot smarter than us and if we do a good job listening we can you know stumble onto a founder who has a really unique insight that we agree with and you know end up being really lucky to to invest in that company. So if you sit back and listen, you'll be able to decipher kind of where the world is going, I think, and hopefully we'll be right. Yeah. Well, I love that point because it's one, you know, I made when I was writing predicting the turn of this concept of market intelligence. And I think the biggest mistake Fortune 500 makes is you spend your day in meetings with people that are part of your tribe already. You're doing meetings with your bosses and right. your colleagues and your agency partners. And without that external engagement, you're not getting a chance to sit down with those super smart people that might change your viewpoint and give you that glimpse of where an industry might be headed. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We, we're always reminding each other to keep an open mind. And we'll often lead when, we're, when we, we have to, we have this interesting position where one of us will meet with a founder and then we have to take in all of those data points and take in that pitch. And then we have to represent that founder and do as good of a job as we can, giving that pitch on their behalf to our partnership at first. And that's really hard to do, especially if the idea isn't obvious. And so we usually start the pitches, especially if it's a company that doesn't make intuitive sense at first and you really need to think about it with, all right, everybody keep an open mind. And then we give the pitch because this is a reminder that you need to think more about what could go right rather than all the things that could go wrong in order to find those game-changing companies. So that mindset, is there a moment when you look back and you were of the mindset, I didn't believe this going in, and by the end, having that open mind turned into an investment or a company you were really excited to be involved with? Yeah, I mean, I think there have been a bunch of, of situations where I've been skeptical of the entire story coming together, but I just believed in the founder that much, where I, so I made the investment and, and was pleasantly surprised that they were able to find the market. 
so there have been there have been plenty of those situations, but it is helpful to have everything moving in the in the right direction going in, like the breakthrough idea, the right founder, the right market. All of that is nice when it lines up, but sometimes it's nice to back the founder and let them and if you believe in them, let them find let them bring that all together, even if you may, you know, doubt some of the I don't know, dynamics in the market or what have you. So I want to do a slightly different uh, take, which is, as a dad, I'm fascinated by the partnership that you guys have with Sesame Street mm-hmm. um, that you call Collab Plus Sesame. Yeah. So I know that was started before you joined the firm, but tell me about the backstory and where that's going, because it's such a unique, I think, relationship. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was not there at the firm when, when that was formed, but I think it, it largely came out of uh, my partner Craig's passion for the the kids space and Craig has incredible taste when it comes to to brand and I he thought well what better partner to start a kids focused vehicle with than Sesame Street I mean we all grew up on it and it's still an iconic brand today Um, and since we weren't known for making kids investments it was an amazing partnership for us because it immediately you know, gave us a, a brand that outstanding entrepreneurs who are starting things in the kids space wanted to be associated with. So it's been an amazing partnership and we've learned a ton from them and they're incredibly active and involved in helping the companies and uh, along the way in our investment decision-making process. And, and so I think it's just one of those things where Craig had a creative idea, he had a passion for the space, a creative idea to, to, to partner with Sesame. And luckily for us, they were open enough to uh, to consider putting a, you know, a decent portion of their endowment into the into the fund, and so far it's been working out really well. So you you made a really interesting comment there, which is about shared brand equity. And with partnerships, it needs to be a win for both sides, where each gets something in return. And that's a shift for corporations to think about, where it's usually been vendor relationships versus partnerships. Are there any other lessons you've had of what what makes a partnership really work well? that maybe a Fortune 500 company could take inspiration from? Yeah, I mean, I think that you hit the nail on the head. And the best partnerships are the ones that are, you know, win-wins where both sides get to benefit and one side isn't trying to be overly extractive. And you need to set things up with that mindset from the very beginning, which is how that fund was set, was set up, which is I think is the reason why it's going to be successful is that the incentives were aligned the worldview and the brand worldview is was very much aligned. So if you have all of those things, I think you can very much, much work, but you need to have the you need to be willing to leave the last dollar on the table or or some you know brand equity on the table in order to get something else. So I think it, it takes that mindset of being of both sides being a little bit generous with their expertise or their brand or something like that in order to in order to make it work. Well, speaking of being generous, thank you for your time today. I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, can't say thank you enough for taking the time to sit down. Thanks for having me, Dave. Thank you.